Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 29, the book of Acts, chapter 13. Well, as we concluded uh, Acts chapter 12 last week, the focus that had been mainly on Peter and then the goings-on in the Holy Land, now shift. They shift to Paul into foreign lands that were were the home to the majority of Jews. (coughs) Sorry. We've passed a new milestone now in that the Lord has specifically instructed the members of the way, consisting almost of... 100% of of Jews up to now to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Now in no way of course did this mean that evangelizing Jews was to diminish or come to an end. It's only that a second front has been opened to bring the promise of blessings contained in Abraham's covenant to the whole world regardless of race, ethnicity, or nationality. Now, when we close Acts chapter 12, we found Paul and Barnabas back in Jerusalem bringing with them money from the, uh, to, to help these believers in Jerusalem get through a famine that had broken out throughout the Roman Empire. Now, this money was the result of, of charitable generosity from the believing Jews and Gentiles in Antioch, Syria. So, with that... Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1377. In the Antioch congregation were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Shimon, known as the Black, Lucius from Cyrene, Menachem, who had been brought up with Herod the governor, and Shaul. Now one time when they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Ruach HaKodesh said to them, Set aside for me Barnabas and Shaul for the work which I have called them. After praying and fasting, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So these two, after they had been sent out by the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and from there sailed to Cyprus. After landing in Salamis, they began proclaiming the word of God in the, uh, the word of God in the synagogues with Yochanan, uh, Mark, as an assistant, and thus they John Mark, and as an assistant, and thus they made their way throughout the whole island. They ended up in Paphos, where they found a Jewish sorcerer and a pseudo prophet named Bar Yeshua. He attached himself to the governor, Sergius Paulus, who was an intelligent man. Now the governor had called for Barnabas and Shaul, Barnabas and Paul, and was anxious to hear the message about God. But the sorcerer, Elimas, for that is how his name is translated, opposed them, doing his best to turn the governor away from the faith. And then Shaul, also known as Paul, filled with the Ruach HaKodesh, stared straight at him and said, You son of Satan, full of fraud and evil, you enemy of everything good, won't you ever stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? So now look, the hand of the Lord's upon you. 
and for a while you'll be blind and able to see the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over Elimas, and he groped about trying to find someone to lead him by the hand, and then on seeing what had happened, the governor trusted, astounded by the teaching of the Lord. Well, having set sail from Paphos, Shaul and his companions arrived at Perga in Pamphylia. There, Yochanan, John Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. But the others went on from Perga to Pisidian Antioch, and on Shabbat they went into the synagogue and they sat out. Well, after reading from the Torah and from the prophets, the synagogue leader sent them a message. Brothers, if any of you has a word of exhortation for the people, speak. So Shaul stood and motioned with his hand, and he said, Men of Israel, God fears, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. He made the people great during the time when they were living as aliens in Egypt, and with a stretched out arm, he led them out of the land. For some forty years he took care of them in the desert, and after he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave their land to his people as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After that, he gave them judges, down to the prophet Shmuel, Samuel. Then they asked for a king. God gave them Saul ben Kish, a man from the tribe of Benjamin. After 40 years, God removed him, and he raised up David as king for them, making his approval known with these words, I found David ben Yeshai to be a man after my own heart. He'll do everything I want. And in keeping with his promise, God has brought to Israel from this man's descendants a deliverer, Yeshua. Now, before the coming of Yeshua, Yochanan proclaimed to all the people of, of Israel an immersion in connection with turning to God from sin. But as Yochanan was ending his work, he said, well, Who do you suppose I am? Well, I'm not. But after me is coming someone, the sandals of whose feet I'm unworthy to tie. Brothers, sons of Avraham and those among you who are God-fearers, it is to us that the message of this deliverance has been sent. For the people living in Jerusalem and their leaders did not recognize who Yeshua was or understand the message of the prophets read every Shabbat. So they fulfilled that message by condemning him. They could not find any legitimate ground for a death sentence. Nevertheless, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all the things written about him, he was taken down from the stake and placed in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He appeared for many days to those who had come up with him from the Galil, the Galilee, to Jerusalem. And they are now his witnesses to the people. As for us, we are bringing you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled for us the children in raising up Yeshua, as indeed it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have become your father. And as for raising him up from the dead to return to decay no more, he said, I will give the holy and trustworthy things of David to you. This is explained elsewhere. You will not let, you, you will not let your holy one see decay. For indeed, David did indeed serve God's purposes in his own generation. But after that, he died. He was buried with his fathers and he did see decay. However, the one God raised up did not see decay. Therefore, brothers, let it be known to you that through this man is proclaimed forgiveness of sins. 
That is, God clears everyone who puts his trust in this man, even in, reg- <clears throat> even in regard to all the things concerning which you could not be cleared by the Torah of Moses. Watch out then, so that this word found in the prophets may not happen to you. You mockers. Look, marvel and die. For in your own time I'm doing a work that you simply will not believe, even if someone explains it to you. And as they left, the people invited Shaul and Barnabas to tell them more about these matters, the following Shabbat. Well, when the synagogue meeting broke up, many of the born Jews and and the devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who spoke with them and urged them to keep holding fast to the love and kindness of God. And the next Shabbat, nearly the whole city gathered together to hear the message about the Lord. But when the Jews who had not believed saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and they spoke up against what Shaul was saying and insulted him. However, Shaul and Barnabas answered boldly, It was necessary that God's word be spoken to you first. But since you are rejecting it and you are judging yourselves unworthy of eternal life, why, we're turning to the Goyim, to the Gentiles. For that is what Adonai has ordered us to do. I have set you as a light for the Goyim, for the Gentiles, to be for deliverance to the ends of the earth. The Gentiles were very happy to hear this. They honored the message about the Lord and as many as had been appointed to eternal life came to trust. And the message about the Lord was carried throughout the whole region. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the women God-fearers of high social standing and the leading men of the city and they organized persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their district. However, Shaul and Barnabas shook off the dust of their feet against them and went on to Iconium. And the Talmudim, the disciples, were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Well, now back in Antioch, we are told that these that the believing community there was served by prophets and teachers, and, and among these were Barnabas and, and Paul and a fellow named Shimon Niger. There was Lucius of Cyrene, and then there was Manaean, who had some undefined kind of relationship with King Herod Agrippa. I remember Herod Agrippa had just recently died. Now a name not mentioned is John Mark among these teachers and prophets. Even though the ending of verse verse of chapter 12 says he accompanied Paul, Paul and Barnabas. Now this is because John Mark is really just a bit player. He's considered as a servant or an attendant. And so he wouldn't be mentioned as among the prophets or the teachers. Now, we know what teachers do. But in this context, what's the purpose of a prophet? It seems that in this era, prophets and teachers were nearly the same thing. It's probable that a prophet was merely a more qualified teacher. Now, in the New Testament, most references to prophesying are really about speaking God's written word, that is, quoting the Hebrew Bible. About the only discernible difference between the two terms seems to be that teachers were usually part of the local community and they taught regularly, while prophets tended to be itinerant. 
and they would wander from synagogue to synagogue offering their insights. Both were held in very high regard. Now among these teachers and prophets in Antioch, we recognize Paul and, and Barnabas' names, of course. But the others we've not been introduced to before. Now since Niger is Latin for black, apparently Shimon was a black-skinned man, but we don't know where he's from. Lucius is from Cyrene, today known as Libya. We don't know where Menaean is. Is originally uh, whether he's from uh, originally from Antioch or he's come from somewhere else too. Just know that Menaean is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Menachem. All of these men, all of them, were Jewish believers. Now, verse two explains that as they were worshiping and fasting together, the Holy Spirit told them it was time to anoint Paul and Barnabas for the specific ministry that the Lord had previously decided for them, taking the gospel to the Gentiles. In other words, there was nothing new that happened here. While I can't be sure, I believe that what is being described as the Holy Spirit telling them is not a vision, it's not a visitation or or something audible, but rather it's the same thing that modern believers receive, especially during prayer, as something just kind of comes into our minds and we instinctively know it's from God. See, today it's common to say, the Lord told me. This doesn't so. But in Acts where the Holy Spirit is emphasized, the common way of saying the same thing was to attribute that thought or unction to the Holy Spirit. Now it's also interesting that we often see worship or prayer accompanied with fasting as as we do in this passage. Now just what form that fasting took isn't clear. Some scholars believe that the word fast meant it just as we think of it today. We refrain from eating food for some predetermined amount of time. Other scholars think that while it can mean that, it also can mean denying oneself other things for a brief time. That is, fasting didn't always have to do with food. In any case, fasting as part of a worship or prayer was usual, it was customary in that era. And it seems to have made the worshippers more able to hear and respond to the Holy Spirit. Now, I've talked with many believers who tell me that indeed, fasting with prayer does seem to heighten their sensitivity towards God. Now, I've generally found this to be personally true as well. Hilary Leigh Cournot points out that in the anonymous Jewish work entitled The Apocalypse of Elijah, we get a good insight as to how folks from that era viewed the expected effects from fasting. Because there it states this, a pure fast releases sin, it heals diseases, it casts out demons, it is effective up to the throne of God for an ointment and for a release of sin by means of pure prayer. So extreme fasting 
meaning denial of food, maybe other things as well, for an extended period of time, was seen by especially pious people as a means to obtain a divine vision that they sought. Now, I don't recommend such an approach for both health and spiritual reasons, but fasting was always accompanied with intense prayer, or it served no spiritual purpose. And with that, I agree wholeheartedly. Now, it's also instructive that up to now, we've seen mostly prophets and and then teachers and, and Yeshua's disciples receiving their divine marching orders by means of an oracle from uh, from an angel, sometimes from God himself, other times from Yeshua. But now it's the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, that is being given credit. Now I've often stated that there is much evidence to heavily imply that Yeshua and John and perhaps some of the, uh, of the earliest disciples of Yeshua had much interaction with the essence of Qumran. Many of the terms and thoughts expressed in some of the essence documents, the Dead Sea Scrolls, are mirrored in the words of Christ and in other New Testament writers for that matter. And if not said precisely in their terms, often the essence unique theological concepts are something that we're going to find similarly explained in the New Testament. I'm going to give you one such example concerning Essen theology because it's about the Holy Spirit. And this is found in the Dead Sea Scrolls document that's labeled 1QH20. Here's what it says. And I, the instructor, have known you, my God, through the Spirit which you gave in me. And I have listened loyally to your wonderful secrets through your Holy Spirit. You have opened within me knowledge of the mystery of your wisdom and the source of your power. Now, this was written several years prior to the birth of Messiah Yeshua. So, what we have here is strong evidence that these devout men living out in the desert outpost of Qumran away from institutional Judaism, separated from the corrupt corrupt temple and, and priesthood, had already begun to realize the critical importance of the work of God's Holy Spirit. What is also fascinating is the concept of the working of the Spirit within a man as opposed to only being upon a man, which up to now had been the way the Holy Spirit operated. Yet I'm also sure they had no idea just how critical the presence and the role of the Holy Spirit would soon be in God's plan of redemption once the Messiah appeared and and then he left. Well, starting in verse 4, and actually going on through Acts 14.26, we are told about Paul's first four missionary journeys. But he and Barnabas did not go out until the believing leadership in Antioch anointed them in prayer and they laid hands on them. This served to essentially, officially commission them in prayer. And... It signified 
an agreement with, a recognition of the Antioch congregation's leadership interest in Paul's and Barnabas' mission to the Gentiles. So something we need to keep in mind here is taken from this. Paul's missionary journeys were sanctioned and supported by the believers in Antioch. Not by the leadership and congregation of believers in Jerusalem. Of which Peter and James were the leaders there. Now this is significant. So Shaul and Barnabas now went to the local seaport of Antioch called Seleucia Perea. And from there they sailed to the Mediterranean island of Cyprus. Now Cyprus is only about 60 miles by sea from Seleucia, so it wouldn't have taken them very long. However, since the progress of these ships was dictated by wind and weather, each time a journey was undertaken, the time of travel varied. (coughs) This would be a good time to mention that whether by sea or by land, there was a season for travel. There was a season to avoid travel if, if it was possible. Generally speaking, it was desirable to travel and to ship goods between the end of May and the middle of September in modern calendar terms. But from mid-September to mid-November and then from mid-March to the end of May, the weather could be so severe and quickly changeable that while travel and shipping didn't entirely cease, it was best to avoid these periods of at all possible because the the risk so greatly increased. Now we should keep this in mind as well as we hear, hear of Paul's journeys and it may give us a clue as to the times of year of the year when he was traveling. Now further There weren't any such things as ships that were purely commercial passenger vessels. Rather, all ships were cargo carriers. So when a person booked passage on a ship, they didn't have some nice cabin or have hot meals served to them on board. So depending on the um, circumstances, one can find themselves sleeping on the deck, laying on top of the cargo in the hold. If there were any kind of creature comforts at all, those belonged to the ship's crew. Until, or rather, usually a passenger had to bring their own food and provisions if they expected to eat. Not exactly like a cruise ship. So flexibility in travel plans was also important because the route could change in a moment's notice if there was a business opportunity to take advantage of or the wind or the weather forced to change. However, as uncomfortable and risky as sea travel was for passengers, it was also an inexpensive mode of transportation. So Paul and Barnabas didn't need too much in the way of funds from the Antioch congregations to pay for their sea travel on their mission trips. Now verse 5 explains a basic format for where it is that Paul and Barnabas proclaimed the good news. Where'd they go? They went to the local synagogues. Now that's just a natural thing to do. There were no such things as churches in the way we 
think of them. Just as there were no such people as Christians all right, in the sense of a movement of Gentile Jesus worshippers that were separate and apart from the Jews and, and the way. The first place they went upon reaching Cyprus was Salamis. Now, no doubt Barnabas was leading the way. See, because Cyprus was his home. Here we have mention now of John Mark in his role as a helper. John Mark was a cousin of Barnabas. Now, it's often said by Bible commentators that the reason that Paul always first went to synagogues was to fulfill Yeshua's instructions to his disciples of first to the Jews, then to the Greeks. While I can't entirely discount this, I doubt this was really on Paul's mind. After all, Yeshua had told him he was to be the emissary of the good news to who? To the Gentiles. And then he and Barnabas were commissioned in Antioch and sent off to fulfill that particular mission. He went to the synagogues because the first Gentiles he approached were already God-fearers. In other words, they were halfway there, so to speak. And out in the diaspora, you see, there was less overall resistance to the idea of Gentiles coming into synagogues to worship with Jews. A traditional day of communal gathering and worship on Shabbat had been established and it was well known. And it was common that visitors and itinerant prophets would come to the synagogues to teach or even to speak. In other words, there was a ready-made organization and a system that Paul could just tap into. And remember, the way was merely another sect of Judaism. There was no stated goal, not even by Paul, of someday setting up non-Jewish houses of worship for Gentiles, nor especially was there a goal of severing worship of Yeshua away from Judaism as its own distinct new religion. But more, <clears throat> these diaspora Jews were generally Hellenists. That is, they were Greek speakers. They lived a Greek lifestyle. You know, Greek society loved to hear and debate new ideas. So they weren't shy about allowing various speakers into their synagogues. This is why Paul and Barnabas were usually welcomed, even if at times after being heard they were chased out of town. And by the way, it's interesting to note that synagogues were more at home in foreign lands than they were in the Holy Land. The oldest synagogues unearthed have been found in places like Macedonia and Italy. And the reason for this is obvious. The synagogue was invented, it was created by Diaspora Jews for use by Diaspora Jews in their foreign nations. They had existed in a very similar form to what Paul was visiting for more than three centuries. So synagogues were merely a familiar and accepted part of the landscape to Gentiles, even if most of them had never set foot in one. Well, after spending some unstated amount of time in Salamis, they then journeyed a little over 50 miles to the southwest coast, 
In other words, they were still on Cyprus, to the city of Paphos. Here they had a run-in with a sorcerer named Elimas. Now, this is the Greek name for Bar Yeshua, which means son of Yeshua. This in no way is referring to the Messiah, and it's not mocking him either. Yeshua was among the most common names for Jewish males at this time. The most common name was Shimon, Simon. Paphos was no doubt selected because it was the administrative governing center for the island of Cyprus. Thus we hear that this Jewish sorcerer, Bar Yeshua, was associated with the Roman proconsul Sergio Paulus, who was said to be an intelligent man. And it was common for government leaders to have seers and diviners in their employ, as Romans were a very superstitious people. What's also notable is that this Elimas is a Jewish magician, something that is staunchly prohibited in the Torah of Moses, with the punishment for practicing magic being death. Now the Gentile Roman proconsul was interested in hearing Paul's message about the God of Israel, but the Jewish magician opposed it. So the zealous and outspoken Paul just lit into that magician, telling him that he was the son of the devil, and that since he was opposing the Lord, a curse of God is going to be laid upon him. Paul's tirade was specifically because this magician was a Jew, and he should have known better than to practice this forbidden trade. Immediately, the sorcerer lost his eye, uh, sorcerer lost his eyesight. He had to be led around by the hand. Now notice how similar this is to what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. The early church father, Venerable Bede, says this of of that. He says, Paul, remembering his own case, knew that by the darkening of the eyes, the mind's darkness might be restored to light. It's a good thought. Seems as though Paul, calling Bar Yeshua son of the devil, it's very likely one of those hidden Hebraisms in the New Testament that we've, we've talked about a little bit. That is, this is a Hebrew expression, but it's masked because of its translation into Greek and then later into English. Now remember who Paul is addressing. He's addressing a Jewish magician. So Paul probably is calling him a known and familiar Hebrew epithet, Ben Belial. Even in Hebrew, Belial carries an ambiguous meaning. However, it revolves around the concept of being worthless and wicked. So sometimes, Ben Belial is translated into English as son of worthlessness. It's easy to see then how in Greek it becomes translated as huios diabolos. Huios diabolos. Most literally, this Greek phrase translates to son of slandering or son of citing with evil. It is common, you see, in translation that one language has no direct equivalent in another language. So you have to choose something that's pretty close but likely does not quite express the precise meaning. Well, the Roman governor was impressed. 
by what Paul seemed to have, have done to Elimas. And, and he was now all ears. And he listened intently to Paul's message. And we're told that he believed because the message was perhaps the most profound thing he had ever heard. Yet, what he believed in and exactly the level at which he accepted it's left ambiguous. That is, was it the gospel that he heard or was it more about the God of Israel in general? And while he believed what he heard, did this amount to believing that Paul was saying the truth or was it a saving belief? We don't know. We don't hear anything about the Holy Spirit coming upon the governor nor of an instruction for him to be baptized. So I doubt that this meant that the Roman governor accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior. Well, after some indeterminate amount of time that the three remained on Cyprus, at some point they found a ship to take him to the Asia Minor coast of Pamphylia and to the city of Perga. Now, Perga was a major metropolitan city of that region. It was there that John Mark left Paul and Barnabas and he returned to Jerusalem. No reasons given for his leaving. But later on in Acts, we hear of Paul being pretty unhappy with John Mark for leaving them and he regarded it as abandonment. So there were some underlying problems that had developed between John Mark and Paul. Remember now, John and Barnabas were family. So no doubt this dust-up also caused some friction between Barnabas and Paul. Now verse 14 explains that from Perga, Paul and Barnabas went to Pisidian Antioch. And as usual, they waited for Shabbat, and then they went to the local synagogue. This is a different Antioch than the one in Syria. In fact, there are 15 or 16 known places called Antioch because they were all named in honor of Antiochus Epiphanes. We are told that they had to cross over a mountain range to get there. So no doubt they timed their trip to avoid the winter snows or the spring downpours. The distance between Perga and Antioch of Pisidia was over 125 miles. So travel time would be a week in decent weather. Now as, it, as with everywhere they've gone so far, <clears throat> there's a Jewish community in Antioch of Pisidia now, it isn't that in every town of the Roman Empire that there was a Jewish community. It is that Paul and Barnabas intentionally targeted those cities and towns with a sufficient number of Jews to support a synagogue. It was a typical procedure that on Shabbat that a Torah scroll would be removed from its ark and then rolled out on a table and read. Now notice how verse 15 says, After the reading of the law and of the prophets. See, the law is synonymous with the term Torah. So after reading the weekly Torah portion, that is a section of Genesis through Deuteronomy, then the next reading is of the Haftarah, which is a series of scripture readings from the prophets. Now the word Haftarah may sound like it's connected to the word Torah, but it isn't. 
The word means something like parting or taking leave. No one knows exactly when this tradition of meeting on Sabbath in synagogues began. We don't know when the customary service of reading a portion of the Torah followed by a reading from the prophets originated. But what we do know is it happened before New Testament times because we're reading about it right here in Acts 13 verses 14 and 15. Now it was also customary that following the two readings of Scripture a short comment would be made by either the synagogue president or later in synagogue development, a rabbi. Now often the floor was even opened up to the congregation to see if someone had something they wanted to say. Now the readings that they heard would have been in Greek, taken from the Greek Septuagint, the Greek, that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. During Paul's era, most synagogues did not have assigned teachers, per se. There might be a few different men who were regularly called on to teach. But even then, the teachings following the readings were not exegetical scripture study. Rather, they more resembled a moral teaching on on some aspect of Jewish life. Now remember, Judaism then, just like it does now, revolved around halakha, Jewish law. And Jewish law is a fusion of the Torah of Moses, traditions, and customs. So scripture study, as, as we know it, in Seed of Abraham Torah class, wasn't the usual mode at synagogue. Matter of fact, when it did occur, it took place at a Beit Midrash, which, was, which is a house of study. Now, those who presided over the synagogue in Antioch then offered for Paul and or Barnabas to, to give a word of encouragement to the congregation. Paul responded by walking up to the raised platform, the Bema, and he began to speak. And his opening words are very revealing. He addresses his audience as, first, men of Israel, Israelim, and second, God-fearers. Men of Israel means Hebrews, Jews. God-fearers means Gentiles who worship the God of Israel, but they've not converted to becoming a Jew. So here is proof that this particular synagogue, Gentiles were allowed to join the Jews. And apparently there were no serious issues of ritual purity that concerned this Jewish congregation. This was not so in all the synagogues of the Roman Empire and man it was the opposite case in the Holy Land and especially in Jerusalem. This reality is going to play a major role in what happens at the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15. Paul now goes into a speech that brings back memories of the speech that that martyr Stephen gave in his defense before the Sanhedrin. It is essentially a historical survey of Israel's past in order to make a point. So Paul begins with the first of Israel's patriarchs, Abraham. Because upon God's election of Abraham, we have the birth of the Hebrew people. 
And a series of important theological points is then made that really, truly ought to be labeled Christianity 101. These are the basics for understanding the history of our faith. So when one realizes that Abraham was the root and that he was also the first Hebrew, then we have every justification we need to defend the definition of our faith as truly and accurately a Hebrew roots faith. And when Paul says that God made the people great when they were living in Egypt, he means great in the sense of many, not has nothing to do with merit. Now I want to pause for a moment and have you hear what the editor of the Complete Jewish Bible, David Stern, says about this concept of God choosing the Hebrew people out of all the other people on this planet to be set apart for himself. Because God choosing one over the other is often taken as a matter of pride when it ought to be just the opposite. He says this, While it is possible that some Jews, like some Christians, become proud to be chosen, I think many find it embarrassing. And they wish, like Tevye in Fiddler on the Roof, that God would choose somebody else for a change. But only if I take chosenness to imply superiority do I become either embarrassed or proud. The right attitude the one taken by Shaul and by the writers of the Tanakh is that Israel's election by God is not predicated on any special quality in Israel but entirely on God's grace. Rightly defined as God's undeserved favor. Being aware of this favor as undeserved should make us humble without embarrassing us. Well said. In verse 17, when we see Paul speak of God leading Israel out of the land of Egypt with an outstretched arm, it means God rescued Israel from Egypt with judgment against those who were hindering his people. Then after delivering his people from bondage, God cared for them out in the desert for 40 years, after which he destroyed seven nations in Canaan to pave the way for Israel to inherit the land the seven nations had inhabited. A list of the nations could be found in Deuteronomy 7. The land of Canaan was not a gift of conquest from God to the Israelites. It was a gift of inheritance. Why inheritance? Why not as a spoil of war? Because God already owned the land. He had hundreds of years earlier promised to give it to Abraham. It became Abraham's land the instant God promised it. See, all that remained was for Abraham's descendants to go in and possess it. So the Lord merely evicted the unlawful squatters. And then he turned over to the rightful inheritors, Israel, that which he'd long ago bequeathed to them. See, this is because God is a father to his children, Israel. And that's what fathers do. Verse 20 says, 
that the process of Israel living in Egypt and then God rescuing them and then taking them through the desert and dispossessing the Canaanite squatters took 450 years. Now this number is given in round terms. It's not to be taken as precise. And after that the Lord gave Israel judges, shoftim, to rule over them. The age of the judges lasted through Samuel who was part judge, part prophet. But the people of Israel wanted a king like their Gentile neighbors. So God gave them Saul, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Well, let's take another brief pause to make an interesting connection. In Genesis 45, which is part of the story about Joseph and his brothers coming to Egypt to buy grain from him, we read about how Joseph gave his little brother, Benjamin, five times as much food and clothing and silver as he gave to his other brothers. In Egypt, five times the regular portion is the royal portion. Why would Joseph give the royal portion to Benjamin? Is it because they had the same mother? Is it because Benjamin is the only brother not guilty of selling Joseph into slavery? It is certainly not because Benjamin would become the inheritor of the nation of Israel. That would turn out to be an older brother, Judah. Whatever was Joseph's true motive at the time, in the end, it is because this was prophetic of Saul of the tribe of Benjamin who became the first king, the first royalty of Israel. That's what it was shadowing. But then comes an important turning point. After 40 years, God removes Saul. He turns the throne over to David of the tribe of Judah. This now sets the stage for David's messianic descendant who would deliver Israel all over again. King David was chosen because he will do what God wants him to do. And this is because David was a man after God's own heart. Now remember, in the Bible, any reference to the heart is not about emotions or warm feelings. In that day and age, the heart organ, the lave, is where the ancients believed that our thought processes, our minds, existed. They didn't know then that it was that this occurred in the brain. So God is saying that David is a man after God's own mind. That is, David wants what God wants. Then in verse 23, the messianic promise is fulfilled. God promised David that his bloodline would never end, and we read of that promise in a number of places in the Bible, but the first place that it is recorded is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to read that for you now. 2 Samuel 7, 9-16 through 16. I have been with you wherever you went. I have destroyed all your enemies ahead of you. I am making your reputation great like the reputations of the greatest people on earth. I will assign a place to my people Israel. I will plant them there so that they can live in their own place without being disturbed anymore. The wicked will no longer oppress them as they did at the beginning. As, as, as they did from the time I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. Instead, I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, Adonai tells you that Adonai will make you a house. 
When your days come to an end and you sleep with your ancestors, I will establish one of your descendants to succeed you. One of your own flesh and blood. I will set up his rulership. He will build a house for my name. I will establish his royal throne forever. I'll be a father for him. He'll be a son for me. If he does something wrong, I'll punish him with rods, with a rod and blows, just as everyone gets punished. Nevertheless, my grace will not leave him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Thus your house and your kingdom will be made secure forever before you. Your throne will be set up forever. Then Paul says, And in keeping with the promise to make David's throne secure forever, God has brought to Israel the descendant from David who will sit on the throne forever. And his name is Yeshua. My daily prayer is that Yeshua will come back very soon to occupy that throne of David forever. We'll continue with Acts 13 next week.